Welcome to the Leaders of Interest podcast with your host, Jonathan J.J. Gerald. This is the podcast for relevant leaders, and now your host, J.J. Hey, Cy Wakeman. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. You are very welcome. Glad to be here. I uh, had the opportunity to see you in action. I believe it was in HR Florida at the state conference. Your book then? Yeah, it was. And uh, something that stuck out to me about you is you absolutely love what you do, don't you? Absolutely. It's (laughs) the perfect job. Tell us a little bit about what you do. You know, I focus on helping people ditch the drama. And so many people have expected, you know, work to not be fun, and especially when we're asked to do more with less. And basically, people have come to just accept that work sucks sometimes. And uh, I love carrying the message that it just doesn't have to, that you can get great results, and you can be really happy and be very successful. So I speak and write and blog for Fast Company and Forbes and uh, have published a couple of books on the topic of ditching the drama and one's called reality-based leadership and the other is called reality-based rules to the workplace and basically I help people understand that they're absolutely just a few behaviors away from being incredibly productive and absolutely happy and that their engagement doesn't really depend on anyone else it doesn't depend on their boss it doesn't depend on their circumstances that it really just depends on their own accountability level their own choices so i spend lots of time on the road helping people take all that energy that goes into drama and put it in a place that really makes a difference oh good i always like to start as i do with every interviewee and that is ask some icebreaker questions and i call them would you rather questions so i think i have three or four of them here for you so they were really designed just for the listener to learn a little bit about you. So okay. uh, let's go with the first one. Would you rather have someone talk to you like they're a two-year-old or in a sarcastic tone? Oh, I love sarcasm. I'll take sarcasm. <laughs> good, good. What about uh, would you rather drive a race car or a moped? Oh, a moped. I went everywhere when I was 14 on a moped. Would you rather deal with an egotistical person or a dramatic person? Oh, both of them are so much fun. For me, that's a trick question because dramatic people are egotistical people. They just don't realize it. But their ego's in control, wanting to be fed, and that's why they're into drama. But I probably am more experienced with the dramatics. I'll take that one. All right, and then the last would-you-rather question is, would you rather lose your luggage and have to wear the same outfit for three days or have your rental car broken into and have all your belongings stolen? <laughs> I've experienced both of those. Little birds telling you. (laughs) Um, I would pick lose my luggage and wear the same outfit for three days because I still am missing some of my files on my computer. So everyone, back up your computers right now. It could happen. That was a setup question. Thank you, Sarah, for your help. Setup. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, let's just go with one more question. What was your most embarrassing moment? Oh, my gosh. I have so many because I just do very embarrassing things. But when I was first in healthcare, really trying to impress my CEO and move up the the chain, we were at a big Christmas gathering. It was a Catholic hospital, and everybody was, they were giving things away. And people were getting, at the time, you know, like Walkmans and really cool things at the time. And he drew my name out, and he says, and uh, Cy gets a ham. (laughs) 
like a, a like a big ham, and I was like 21, and I go, without even thinking, in front of everybody, like 700 people, I go, ham, I hate ham, and everyone laughed so hard, and from then on, everyone thought I was Jewish, like they would invite me to their seders, they would, I said, I'm not Jewish, I just hate ham, I really hate ham, so it was just a very embarrassing thing, because the CEO was like shocked on stage when I was, he called me up there, so... <laughs> That's funny. Well, let's get into the interview. Tell us about your worst boss and your best boss. Oh, my best boss is the easy one. And I've had tons of great bosses. But her name was Mary Dolan. And uh, she really took the time to give great feedback and call me to greatness. And so when I thought at any time it was my circumstances that were causing me not to succeed, she was great at saying that's your reality in which you must succeed and really always just focusing on where to grow me. And she gave me huge challenging assignments and um, she was just really, really awesome. My worst boss, and I won't mention his name, is actually a funny story. He was, HR came out to interview all the women in the office because he evidently had been sexually harassing all these women. And, oh um, and he was horrible in other ways, like he would sleep in his office and come in after drinking. And it was just like an HR nightmare. But the funny part to this story is when HR interviewed me, it became evident to me that I was the only one he hadn't sexually harassed. Now, <laughs> oh, no. I don't want to wish sexual harassment on anyone, but I found myself in this predicament where I was furious. I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like, am I a top <laughs> liver? Like, and so he was like a horrible boss for two fronts that he sexually harassed people and that he didn't sexually harass me. So it was just one of those crazy cases. <laughs> he ended up in prison. Oh, no. Yeah, he did. He wow. sold money. So it was wow. a nightmare. So <laughs> we could go all over with the conversation on that. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> but let's get into your book, Reality-Based Leadership. And really, what was the reason why you wrote it? You know, I was out um, giving a lot of training and keynotes and really telling people, what worked for me as a leader because I had been to leadership boot camp and I had learned many of the great basic advice that people will get as a leader and I implemented them. I tried really hard and I found out that so much of what leaders are told either don't work or don't work in reality, meaning we really don't have the time to do some of the things recommended um, or they're absolutely not supported by evidence in psychology or in motivation theory. And so I started to lead how I worked basically as a therapist just based on those principles of how to hold people accountable and how to empathize, not sympathize, and how to really call people up to greatness and help people understand their accountability levels. And my team was getting just incredible results. We were kind of the dream team. And so people would ask me to come talk about how I led and when I was out talking, people were so hungry for the principles, they would use the techniques I would tell them, and I would just get these raving reviews like, Sai, it actually worked. And so many people started asking me, can you put your books or your thoughts in a book, create kind of a manual for us? And, uh, and I did, and I've been surprised because I'm thrilled when people buy the book and read it one time. But I have so many people that come up to me and they have hundreds of little tabs in my book and they tell me I've read this, you know, six, seven, eight times. So it seems like there's a big gap 
for tools that really worked and tools leaders would use. And that's why I wrote the first book. Well, I know that you, in your book, you really expand on something that affects every one of us, and that's that big five-letter word, drama. Exactly. And uh, doing some research before our interview, I found an article that said that drama cost U.S. businesses about $359 billion a year. With yeah, with another three hundred and fifty-eight million lost workdays, and on average, each person on a forty-hour work week gets involved in about two point seven hours of drama during the week. And you know, our studies show it even higher because we define drama a little bit more broadly. That the average person spends about two hours a day in drama. Mm-hmm. You know, walking around going, "This is sick and wrong. This should not be happening." My boss is a micromanager. I'm suffering. And so, you know, whether it's 2.7 hours a week or two hours a day, it's an extraordinary cost. And, you know, we're also focused on lean process improvement, getting any bit of waste out of our business processes. And the one process no one's looking at is emotional waste that just the way we think, which is what leads us to drama, is costing us this type of money. And I think if I could go to my boss and say, I can save us two hours a day per headcount in the entire organization, that's amazing savings to the organization. Plus, all of us are working on engagement, trying to get our employees happy. And what they don't realize is that by getting the drama, the emotional waste out of the system, that's the one thing that absolutely skyrockets your engagement numbers. Oh, yeah. If you don't mind, let's stick with drama just for a second. And that is sure. a couple questions around it, since it affects all of us, and we've all dealt with it, and we all know it when we see it, that's for sure. Okay, as a leader, take us through what maybe a dramatic person looks like, and then how the heck do we deal with them? Sure. Now, some people just think that drama comes in the drama king or queen, freak out, factor type of fashion. But we know that drama comes in a lot of um, flavors, and some of which are things we've encouraged or come to expect from people. So we don't even realize kind of those silent pieces of drama. So, you know, obviously there's the people that are doing what I call BMW driving, belly aching, moaning, and whining, the negative (laughs) ones, the people focused on why we can't instead of how we could. But we go beyond that in uh, my second book, Leaders Ask, you know, how do I get my employees to understand this? So I wrote the second book, Reality-Based Rules of the Workplace. We, through our research, found five competencies that unless you are fluent in those five competencies, you will be what we call emotionally expensive, you'll be adding drama to the workplace. And it doesn't have to, it isn't always visible. So the first competency is personal accountability. If you are not willing to own your own results, if you're not bought in, if you aren't leaning forward, and if you're waiting for somebody else to engage you, you become full of drama. The second one is what we call reality-based thinking. It's when we go from the facts to our huge stories. So my boss calls to check on a project, asks two questions. If I stick with the facts, I answer the questions, life is good. But I make up a huge story about he's a micromanager and he doesn't trust me and he you know, is looking for ways to fire me and he doesn't value my time. And once I get away from being reality-based thought thinking, that's when I have all the feelings and you know, my stress isn't caused by the phone call, it's caused by the story I made up by the phone call. 
or about the phone call. If you're not great at change, and if you still believe change is hard, then you're emotionally expensive. If you believe you have, need time to deal with change, you're emotionally expensive. You know, if your spouse dies, then you need time to grieve that. But if we change your software, it's like, you know, folks, let's get fluent, and but not attached. There's also people who cannot say yes to the organization who want to give their opinions about why it won't work. Um, that's called organizational alignment. And then lastly, people who have excuses. They actually believe that their circumstances are the reasons they can't get things done. And we call that driving for results. And so when we put people through our formula, they don't think they have drama or they bring drama to the table. And 83% of even the top performers come out negative on this formula because they see where they take away more value than they add through their drama. And it's eye-opening for folks. Wow. It's almost like they just get stuck and don't recognize that they're even doing it until you guys are coming in and really pointing it out, Absolutely. helping people recognize it. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, we've told them for years, we want your opinion. But people think today that the best use of their opinion is to keep you safe and tell you why it won't work and to stop the action. And what I help people do is move away from their opinions and offer their expertise. And expertise is valuable because instead of stopping the action, expertise talks about how we could, in spite of risk, how we could mitigate it, how we could move it forward. And so there's these small changes where people have gotten confused on how to add value, and it's just their lack of knowledge about what will work in the new workplace that ends up making them a source of drama. Because if I could have something implemented and moving forward in three months and gain the business case that that opportunity presents, get the ROI, but I've got people who need time to adjust and it takes a year and a half and they're still frustrated with the new system, that is a source of drama. It is value that leaks out of our work and out of our organization. I love the Gallup polls. I think recently there was somewhere around 71%. The Gallup polls stated that somewhere around 71% of our employees are disengaged. These are people that just kind of humdrum, just kind of drone along. And our organization, I call them people that have you know quit and stayed and are still getting paid. Yeah. And I think something that stuck out in your book to me was this thing about people being accountable for their own happiness at work and accountable for their lack of engagement. What are your thoughts around that? We've come to lead people to believe that engagement is the responsibility of the organization, that the organization needs to make your circumstances fabulous, that hopefully that way it will buy your love, and hopefully you'll give us the gift of your work, when that's just totally against the evidence in psychology. Your happiness is correlated to the amount of accountability you take for your circumstances. And so I tell people engagement is a choice. And my job is to get highly engaged people, the accountable ones who choose it, and then work to create an environment that really supports them. So that's the sweet spot. But when I work with leaders, if they're busy trying to engage everyone, it is a complete waste of resources. I tell them engage the willing 
And that willingness is a big part of it. You've got to engage the willing because your work in trying to engage the unwilling is, you know, it's wasted time and it will be unsuccessful. And so people need to decide on whether they're in or they're out and isn't a third option anymore. Either you stay in joy or you leave in peace, but to stay and quit just isn't an option. And most employees are surprised to find out that engagement is a choice. But I'm in a different place every day. I don't know what my circumstances will be, and I choose to engage and give a great program. And that's the way we can be in charge of our own happiness and not dependent upon everybody else. If you're dependent on other people for your engagement, you're living life as a victim. Yeah, I agree. It's funny you bring up happiness because just today I had a scenario where, you know, you work with a certain individual and they're just moan and groan all the time, totally not happy. And it's the same individual that regardless of the day or what's going on, you can ask them, you know, how they're doing. And the first thing they go, oh, I'm so busy or I can't concentrate because I do everything in the department. What do you think about people like that that really well, cause their own stress? They know, absolutely they, you, do. Right, because you're saying that a person chooses to be happy, right? So how do we deal with this person that, you know what I'm trying to say, a negative person. Thank you. (laughs) Well, one of the, in the book, we've got these five competencies that people need to get fluent in to be low drama, to be emotionally inexpensive, but quite honestly, they're the same things that make them happy at work. And rule number two, and these are rules, once you understand them and live by them, you will be happy and get great results. And rule number two is that suffering is completely optional. If I have a full schedule today, most of us pull up a full schedule and we go, crap, I got to suffer. But if I have a full schedule today, I can go through that with joy or misery. I saw it. And that most suffering is self-imposed because it's not the full schedule that makes me suffer. It's a story I tell about the full schedule, like this is going to sink and I can see into the future and I'm going to be exhausted at the end of the day and I, you know, will hardly get through this and I'll have, you know, won't get all my work done and well, if it's 8 in the morning and you've got 8 hours left in the day and you're projecting that, then that's going to be what you co-create. Or if I just look at it and I go, oh my gosh, I have a full schedule. That means I'm going to have to really set good boundaries today and I'm going to need to um, really be efficient and not overcommit and not spend time in the hallway you know, gossiping with others. I'm going to really need to use all my best tools to impact um, my productivity today so that when I go home at 5, I can be happy and have had great impact and, and life will be good. And see, people give up the choice of impacting any of that when they don't understand that suffering is optional and self-imposed. Yeah, good point. There's a equation out there. I think I learned it from Jack Canfield, but basically it's E plus R equals O, which is the event plus your response equals the outcome. And I think that's exactly your point in your book. Would you agree? Exactly. And if they're my coworkers and they want to bring me drama, one of my favorite techniques is I go, wow, what could I do to help you? Or what should we be doing to help? So for instance, if somebody calls me out and they say, oh my gosh, did you hear about what happened in IT? You know, I go, oh my gosh, I didn't. I love those guys. What could we be doing to help? And most people don't want to be involved in the helping part if they're in the drama part. And they very quickly just kind of say, well, I don't know that there's anything we can do. And then I say, great, what should we focus on next on our project? And I just move them right back into where they can make a difference. So if somebody comes into work and they're like, it's horrible, I'm having a negative day, if I'm their boss, I let them know that they need to choose their attitude and that it's not appropriate, it's unprofessional. If they're not my boss, I say, oh my gosh, I'm sorry you're having a bad day. What's one thing I could do to help? 
And usually that quells the conversation because what they're complaining about is something that can't be fixed in their mind, and they usually, at the minimum, just find somebody else that will participate. Yeah. There's something that really stuck out in your book to me, and that was that this premise or, or this advice that you give about playing favorites. And I don't think you mean play favorites the way your worst boss did. No, not but, at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but what I, do you mean I, by playing favorites? Yeah, when I am a new leader in an organization, I did it a lot because I went and did some turnarounds. But within a few weeks, people come up to me and they're like, Sai, you play favorites. And my response was always, you know, I do. Would you like to be one? And the same behavior won't please a high accountable as a low accountable. And usually the low accountables are the ones coming to me saying that I play favorites. And I don't play favorites based on your ethnicity or where you went to college or your background or your political beliefs or I need all that diversity on my team because our customers are diverse and I want a team that can know their every need and tailor things to them. I'm not talking about that. My favorites are people that are accountable, emotionally inexpensive, great at change, and my most favorite people are the folks who say yes when I have something we need to do as an organization. They put all their energy into how could we make it happen rather than arguing with if we should or not. People who can just take decisions at face value and use their expertise to make them work. And it's not that I don't want their input, but I want their input in how we could rather than why we can't. So, yep, I play favorites. Well, and sometimes you have to when you're under the gun and you have a major project that has to go out. You may not have time to explain to someone how to do it, and you just have to have that go-to person to delegate the responsibility to. Yep, absolutely. So as I read through your two books, actually, you had this whole new concept of philosophy. It's not like the five steps or the seven ways. You are just direct and to the point. Reality, right? So as you have... That you can use an hour later, and people say, how long will it take to change my work group? And it's like minutes, because when you start using different techniques, people behave completely differently. Well, I got to tell you, just your point that you mentioned about, hey, when the dramatic monster comes in your office and are complaining about another department or, or an event, and you say, well, what did you do to help? Boy, that limits the next things that come out of their mouth. Absolutely. It stops it dead in the tracks. And it makes the point in our organization and what I preach is stop judging, start helping. Judgment's the source of drama. Just stop judging. If they're on our team, let's go help them. So I know that from just putting some of the steps into practice have been helpful for me, but what are some, your concept, your philosophy that you have in your books, what are some aha moments that some of your clients might have had? There's so many things that we've taken kind of as conventional wisdom that um, we need to do, and no one's really tested them. So a couple ahas that my clients have had is everybody believes that change is hard, and we have whole classes on how to help people through change. But what we found in our research is change is only hard for the unready. See, if I'm not keeping my skill set up, if I'm not staying ready, then I have to resist change Otherwise, I'll be exposed as unready or not competent. So if, you, if I'm not technically savvy and you gave me a new cell phone, I would be resentful of you because I would now have to learn a new phone and I don't keep up with technology and it's a big, huge hassle. 
if I keep myself tech savvy and you gave me a new phone, I would be thrilled that I didn't have to wait for my upgrade to get rid of my cracked screen. I wouldn't even care if it was an iPhone or an Android. I would be so happy. It would take me like five minutes to get everything off the cloud and move on with my new phone. Well, the difference, it isn't getting a new phone that's hard. It depends on your level of readiness for what's next. And that's a big aha to leaders because we tend to coddle our people and when they're challenged and overwhelmed, we take step away from them and try and fix their circumstances instead of call them up to greatness and help them grow beyond their circumstances. And so we keep people in a a state of unreadiness. And then when we put change in place, we coddle them through that. And it's all just enabling, if that makes sense. That's a big aha for people. No, it makes perfect sense. makes perfect sense. So Uh we need to get rid of all this change management stuff we're doing, and we need to insist that our people stay ready and that they are ready receivers of the change we have to do regularly in business. Well, that's a good point, and you certainly can't have, and I'm finding this out, you certainly can't have people that aren't relevant to your business as well, that aren't keeping up with the changes. Exactly. And that's why when we talk about the true value of an employee, it is their performance and how relevant they're staying. Is that performance sustainable? Are they growing and developing as fast as the needs of the organization? And then we subtract out how emotionally expensive they are. What's the total cost of them? So we look at today's performance, relevance into the future, and at what cost. And if they're low drama, really staying relevant, and performing well today, that's a valuable employee. But somebody performing well today that isn't keeping up with the times, hates training and learning, and also is emotionally expensive, I don't care if their performance is amazing. They cost too much. Yeah, you're right. At the end of the day, we're all paid for results. I don't think you pay anybody in your organization for anything other than results. Exactly. (laughs) What are some of these limiting beliefs that get in the way of people actually completing results? There's so many limiting beliefs that, that get in the way. The biggest limiting belief is this whole thing about wanting to be right versus wanting to be happy. This opinion thing where somebody is asked to do something and they go, we shouldn't have to do this. We shouldn't have to change priorities. Priorities should be clear. They shouldn't change. We shouldn't be asked to drop everything and deal with this emergency. We shouldn't have to. And what I always tell people is like, would you rather be right or successful? Because when you say you shouldn't have to, you know, you could be right. But happy people... If it's in front of them, they just say yes, and they do what it takes to make it work. And those people who are stuck on being right, what they don't realize is that people who are happy don't care about being right, that being right is like the consolation prize. And so I see so many people being asked to do new things, and they focus on why they shouldn't have to or why it won't work, rather than on how they could. And they say no because they don't want too much on their plate, when in fact, yes, yes is a way to get more work and to grow and develop so that what's on your plate isn't so overwhelming anymore. It's like people just really have a lot of things um, backwards. Yeah, I agree. Hey, tell us, considering all the research that you've done and the books that you've written, your speaking and your training experience, what is your best advice for leaders? My best advice for leaders is really work on changing the mindsets of your people And that leaders don't manage people, they manage energy. And where energy is going into drama, it's not personal. Just reroute that energy. And that means 
making sure that you're empathetic, not sympathetic, so that you understand what people are going through, but then you call them to greatness instead of understanding what they're going through and then agreeing with them that we're all victims and that this is so hard and that the the problem is these circumstances. I think leaders fail people every day when they agree with them and collude with them about how bad work is rather than asking people to step up. And the analogy I use is if I go into an emergency room with chest pains and the physician comes out and he or she says, what's wrong? And I go, I have crushing chest pains. And the physician says, oh, my gosh, me too. Does it go down your left arm? I'll say, yeah. And they say, oh, my gosh, me too. What I know is I'm not going to get any medical care. What I find leaders doing to buy the love of their people is they sympathize with them instead of empathize with them, which is, okay, you've got chest pain, so let's take a look at what we can do about that and what you can do about that and help people understand that any suffering they have is something that can be fixed and that usually requires them to do something differently. Like if it's a heart attack, live differently afterwards and clean up (laughs) their own lives and then they won't be susceptible any longer. Who's doing something right now that you're following that you're interested in? Oh, I always love anything that comes out of Daniel Pink's mouth or Marshall Goldsmith or Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, all of those folks that are just those thought leaders out there. I'm loving what they're preaching. I want to be mindful of your time, and I had really have two more questions for you. This next one is a person know what Cy Wakeman wants to be known for. I would love to be known for having revolutionized leadership, that we really come to understand that productivity and happiness at work is about checking the ego at the door, and that leaders really are people that are more about helping people change mindsets and self-reflect rather than direct work and tell people what to do, that that leaders are really about inviting people into that moment of self-reflection and that I would like to be known for helping leaders and employees realize that happiness and results are so much more um, easy than what we're actually thinking that they are. Well said. Tell us the best way for listeners to connect with you and, and find your books. All the books are on all the major retailers, so Amazon to Barnes & Noble. Um, they're all out there. They're on Kindle. They're on audiobook. One's even printed in Mandarin Chinese. So you can go any of those places plus our website, CyWakeman.com or RealityBasedLeadership.com. And uh, we also give a ton of free content. If you go to the website, sign up for the newsletter. We do a free webinar. I personally deliver it each month. We record those. There's about 20 hours of training out there. We also have all kinds of cool content videos, lots of free content. We've got a drama quiz that you can take. We've got an employee value quiz you can take. And uh, if you really want to get into this stuff, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and look over some of the products we offer. We've got these great coaching videos that can come to your inbox every single week for a year. We've got just a lot of great stuff I think will help you look at leadership and being an employee completely differently. Great. I hope everybody takes advantage of that. I thank you so much for being on the call with me today. Thank you for asking me, and have a great weekend. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Be sure to look us up online at leadersofinterest.com. Become a mentor of mentors by rating us in iTunes and Stitcher. 
Your five-star rating helps us invest in leaders just like you. See you next time.